I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to The Connection. Our guest, social psychologist Robert Livingston, is an optimist. He writes in his book, The Conversation, that racial equity is an achievable goal. More than that, he finds it's overwhelmingly supported by the public who say that equal rights, quality education, and economic opportunity are good for the country, good for everyone. He also writes that conversation is the most powerful way to build knowledge, awareness, empathy, and ultimately affect change. So if all of that is true, why haven't we made more progress bringing diversity, equity, and inclusion on the job? DEI programs and trainings at the workplace have come under fire, with critics saying that rather than bringing people together, they can drive them apart, exacerbating divisions and conflicts. Robert Livingston is a Harvard social psychologist who works with companies and nonprofits about how to create equity and inclusion in our increasingly diverse workforce. And Robert Livingston, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Nice to be here today, Marty. Well, let's start with a broad-based question. What does an inclusive, equitable, diverse workplace look like? And even more than that, what does it feel like? Mm, Good questions. So I'll I'll sort of unpack that because I think people often conflate diversity, equity, and inclusion, but in reality, they're three very different things. And so, you know, diversity refers to the diverse representation typically of underrepresented, traditionally underrepresented groups in the organization. So, you know, if you watch Mad Men or you lived Mm -hmm. in the 1950s, you would have noticed there was very little diversity. Uh, The workplace, uh, especially the white collar workplace, was largely white and largely male. There were a few women, people of color, LGBTQ. uh, There was little representation of diverse individuals. Um, But, you know, diversity is not an add and stir sort of thing. Um, You have to make sure that the environment is right um, so that they're included. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I went to the pet store and I would see these colorful fish and I would say, you know, I want Nemo. You know, I want these sort of clownfish and things. And my parents told me, no, we have a salt, a freshwater tank. You can't put saltwater (laughs) fish in a freshwater tank. And I think that's kind of the the notion of inclusion, right? It's, it's you know, we want these colorful fish, these beautiful colorful fish, but we have to make sure that the environment is right for them to thrive. And then equity is making sure that people are represented at all levels of the organization. Typically what you see in organizations is lots of representation of women and people of color in entry level positions or in menial jobs, the janitorial staff, uh, cleaning staff, Um, food service, those sorts of things, but you don't see very much diversity in the C-suite. So all of those things, I think, have to work together in order to create uh, the kind of workplace that um, will produce the kinds of benefits that diversity is known for bringing, such as increases in uh, innovation, creativity, higher performance, et cetera. Again, it's not just an ad stir. Sure. You have to make sure you have the inclusion and the equity. And I do want to get to all of that. I, I mentioned the, the the critics, the backlash, frankly, to some of these DEI programs. Do you understand that? Where that's coming from? Yeah, go ahead. I do. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, the, you, one simple answer is self-interest, right? If people see the world as a zero-sum game and, you know, my power depends on you not having power and I value power, then I don't want to share. So, um, you know, if you're a member of a group that has traditionally occupied 100% of all 
Fortune 500 positions, for example, and now 10% of those are going to women and people of color. You see that as, as an encroachment on your on your right, your entitlement to, to hold power. So I, I, I understand from a, a rational standpoint, uh, somewhat resistance to it, but from another rational standpoint, right, when the tide rises, all ships rise with it. And there have been lots of arguments made for why greater diversity benefits everyone, including members of traditionally dominant groups. So, but, but I do, on the surface, understand people's mm -hmm. response to it. And I think people are also worried about things like, you know, quality. If we, if we lean too much on diversity, does this, does this mean we're not selecting the best candidates? So I think there have been all sorts of um, reasons proffered, some genuine, some uh, not so genuine. Uh, but but yeah, on, on some level, I can't understand it. Sure. I mean, it's it's tricky stuff. I wonder, though, if you need basically buy-in, if a, if a company or a nonprofit wants to address a problem that they think exists within the organization. And I think you were talking about white men, so let's just put it mm -hmm. out there on the table. You know, if 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 through the these various programs you feel like I am going to lose some status, I'm going to lose some authority. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a racist. I'm a good person, uh, but nonetheless, you know, I'm I'm the bad guy in this scenario. How do you how do you address that? Yeah. So so two things. You know, one is I think you do have to get buy-in. Um, directives that are handed down from the top often become stagnated in what we call the frozen middle, right? That, that you get middle managers that just won't implement it because they don't understand with it. They don't agree with it. They see it as threatening. Often they see it as, as being in conflict with their own professional goals and the metrics and the numbers they have to produce. There's all kinds of issues there. But I think it, it's important to get buy-in and not just to generate appeasement. Mm -hmm. and, and and there's a difference between those two. I think buy-in is when people genuinely internalize and intrinsically support and understand what you're trying to do. And they're on board, either because it's consistent with their values, it's consistent with the company's mission and core values. Appeasement is when you really want to maintain the hierarchy, but you give them just a little crumbs to keep them quiet. And I think, unfortunately, appeasement is a lot more common, that lots of people pretend to want to implement change and they do little things, you know, sort of virtue signaling that they can point to to say, look, you know, we've got a token. We've got this one black woman. And, and, and there's research that shows that by doing that, you have these moral credentials that frees you up to never hire another black woman again, because you can always say, hey, you remember? Hmm. Uh, there Sarah she Jenkins is, right? There she is, you know, you can't say I'm a, I'm a sexist, you can't say I'm a racist because she's there. So I think that's performative and that's very different than than what I call real buy-in, which is where you understand and support the mission and you're not just um, engaging in behaviors that will keep the critics uh, and, and, and crowds at bay. Um, in their demands for equality. Well, let me follow up then. I was thinking about beliefs, and, and you write quite a bit about people's beliefs that are based on, you know, their childhoods or their experiences or their biology. I mean, there's so much at play that, that mm -hmm. really uh, creates and, and reinforces the things that we believe in. Um, is the goal then to change people's beliefs or is it to change behavior? Uh, so... 
if we had a pill and if it were easy to do, <laughs> let's start with beliefs. Right? Sure. Let, let, yeah. Let, take that little uh, red pill. Know, like, exactly. There we go. But, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, sometimes you have to fake it before you make it. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I tend to focus on behavior or what we call discrimination rather than attitudes or prejudice. For one thing, it's a lot harder to change attitudes than it is to change behaviors. So, you know, imagine you hate Brussels sprouts, but you learn that Brussels sprouts are so good for you that it'll reduce your risk of cancer to zero, right? Hypothetical situation. But you hate Brussels sprouts. Well, it's a lot easier to force yourself to eat Brussels sprouts than it is to like Brussels sprouts. We don't really have a lot of control over visceral gustatory processes. It's, it's a lot harder to change your internal states than your behaviors. But in that example, if you eat Brussels sprouts enough, you'll actually grow to like them. <laughs> it's an acquired taste, right? And if you think about beer, no one likes it the first time they drink it, but you drink it enough and you're like, this is pretty good mm -hmm. after the 50th sip. So I think um, a lot of these inner group attitudes work the same way. And there's a lot of research on contact and on things that even if they're uncomfortable at first, with over time, they become less uncomfortable and they actually change not only behaviors, but attitudes. So in short, I believe in attitude change, but I think it has to start with behavioral change. Well, and going from, let's say, Brussels sprouts to, to black people, that sounds really weird to, <laughs> to say that. But let's say, you know, someone does hate black people, um, mm -hmm. but and, and they're employed on the job. But if they don't treat them unfairly, um, is is that okay? Have you sort of solved the problem? Uh, I think it depends on the person. For me, you've solved the problem because I don't need to be liked by strangers. So, you know, if, if I'm in New York City or Philadelphia and I need to hail a cab, I don't really care what the cab driver thinks of me, right? And I guess nowadays people, you know, call Ubers. But, you know, as long as I can get out of the rain or the snow and get from point A to point B and that person treats me with, you know, respect and kindness and dignity, I don't really care what, what's going on with the neural connections inside their brain. Um, there are some people who think, no, I, I really need to have, uh, you know, people feel a genuine affinity. I think in the workplace, there are certain obligations that companies have both ethically and legally. And legally speaking, discrimination is illegal, but prejudice is not illegal. In other words, it's not against the law to dislike someone. It is against the law to not hire someone. Mm -hmm. So from a practical standpoint, I think, you know, that's what we should be focused on is, is the behaviors. And, and as I said before, if you do that effectively, hopefully downstream, the attitudes will change too. But, you know, I'm all about being respected rather than being liked. And, and so if I had to choose between those two, I would actually uh, say the behavior is a lot more important than the attitude. You say an interesting thing, which is that you have done you know many, many workshops and, and you bring data to try to convince people about um, racial bias. Um, but you find that stories and anecdotes are actually much more powerful in changing people's perceptions. Yeah, I, I do. You know, and, and that's a phenomenon that uh, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, he's a Nobel laureate. Uh, it's called the availability heuristic, you know, and, and they showed in the 70s when they first started doing this research that, you know, ironically, if you wanted people to donate to famine relief, for example, 
you know, you could give people data on the millions of people who were dying in country X, or you could show them a picture of one child with a tear rolling down their cheek. And, you know, rationally speaking, you should be more willing to donate if there are 10 million people dying than if there's just one person. Um, but showing them that one vivid picture and telling them a story of little Jonas who, you know, doesn't have food on his way to school and, and et cetera, et cetera, will, you know, increase donations by 150%, so more than wow. double the, the number of donations that people will give rather than data about thousands or millions of people. And, you know, being a, a social scientist, it took me a while to sort of wrap my head around that because, you know, people would always ask, well, what's your story or tell, tell us about your experience with discrimination, you know, and I do have vivid stories, but I thought my stories say nothing about the state of the world. Don't you want data about all these, you know, randomly controlled trials and people, you know, assigned to this condition and they had 10,000 or whatever, and they don't, they want my story and then they're convinced. Um, and I did this with the police department to well, try to convince them. Yeah, yeah. hold on only because we, are, we have to take a very short break. Uh, Robert Livingston is our guest today on The Connection. He's a Harvard social psychologist, wrote a book uh, called The Conversation. And we're talking about uh, programs uh, for the workplace, dealing with inclusion and equity and, and diversity. Much more after this very short break. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moskowain talking with Robert Livingston about uh, the fact that many workplaces have instituted diversity, equity, and inclusion training for their employees. They want to create a welcoming environment for everyone. Some of these programs have been criticized. Uh, some are, have, there are some questions about whether they work or not, uh, whether they even create a kind of a backlash. We're talking about the best way to build cohesion in a diverse workforce. Robert, you were talking about uh, the training of a, of a, or I guess it was a program that involved a police officer. I wonder if you could tell that story. Yeah, so I was doing some work with a police department and you know, I presented lots of data, some of it from body cam footage, and it was really strong data that showed this systematic tendency to treat um, black motorists with less respect than white motorists. And, and I even had data from this particular city that showed that, um, you know, there was a lot of discrimination. And, you know, the white cops were looking at me with, you know, just blank stares, like, you know, so what? It wasn't until one of the black police officers on this force broke down in tears because he could really feel the data that, and, and it hit him hard, right? Because we live this every day. So he he started crying. And then the other officer said, oh, well, what's wrong, Jim? Hmm. Um, and Jim started telling stories about the discrimination that he felt as a police officer and that some of the citizens even called the police on him when he's in his police uniform, crazy stories. And, and all of a sudden they were convinced. They said, you know, Dr. Livingston, we've got to do something about this discrimination. And I thought, what? Like, I've been giving you data from the four corners of the universe and, and that didn't convince you, but this one story now has sold you. And the thing is, we're not computers, we're people. People don't necessarily respond to data. They respond 
to other humans who are suffering. And this is an effective way in organizations to build empathy is through these listening tours if people want to share their stories. Well, it's sort of the difference between sort of above the neck and and below the neck. But I wonder too, because we're talking, you're talking about relationships, how people uh, connect to each other. If I can, if I can say that, I wonder too whether even beyond training, whether it's possible to create a, a more welcoming environment when people just either gossip about the boss or share their, you know, their experience. I know you're a movie guy. Share a, a movie that they really enjoyed or, you know, a vacation that they really enjoyed. Rather than having these trainings, whether you create an environment where people just feel free to talk to each other. Yeah, I, I think in order to have social change, as I say in my book, you have to have social exchange. That nothing's going to change until we start building relationships with one another and relationships provide a portal for facts to enter and learning to occur. Most of the learning that happens in our lives is through the context of social relationships. But one thing I wanna to add to this whole story situation, right? Because part of it is social, but part of it is also egocentric. And I kinda of wanna just call this out because I think one of the reasons that people like stories so much is that it has nothing to do with them. Huh. So. If I tell a story about discrimination that I have faced and there's a room full of white people, they're all exonerated because none of them actually were there or, or, or participated in this particular event. So they're like, you know, listening to a narrative unfold. There's a distance between what happened to me and any sort of guilt or, or complicity or implications that they might have. I think where it gets really uncomfortable is when you switch from a personal narrative to what I call a reflected appraisal or a mirror, right? When you start to talk about, you know, their bias, right? Not just what's going on out there in the world or what happened to me, but this is what you do. That's when people start to get really defensive, but I think that's what needs to take place in order to take us to the next level. Because if they're just listening to stories and they feel sympathy, they can go home and say, oh, that was so terrible. We got to do something. But they don't see how they are complicit in this system of racial hierarchy. Well, that's the hard part, right? I mean, so how do you go to that next step, which is something that's happening outside of yourself to something, maybe a person, let's say a white person, says something that is interpreted as as racist or homophobic. Right. Um, they didn't right. mean it per se. Maybe they didn't understand it. How do you deal with that? that well, that's the hard part. It um, is the hard part. It is the hard part. And, and, you know, I always say the learning zone is nestled between the comfort zone and the danger zone. Mm. Meaning if you always stay in, in your sort of comfortable range or zone, you're not going to learn anything new because it's all stuff that you know, you're comfortable. It's like a kid learning algebra for the first time. They're going to be uncomfortable with the fact that letters can represent numbers because they've never seen that before. Um, but you have to sort of push through that discomfort in order to learn. Um, you have to endure it. You have to deal with it. Now, you don't want to uh, create so much discomfort that is traumatic. That's what I call the danger zone. So the learning zone is below the danger zone, but above the discomfort zone. And so many people are reluctant to leave their comfort zone that they don't learn. And there've been whole books written about this. This is Robin D'Angelo's whole idea of white fragility. Um, is that, you know, many people are too fragile to sort of look at themselves and accept 
the fact that they may be racist, particularly white liberals. And so if that's the case, then you never sort of get beyond that stage because you're not willing to face the truth because it's uncomfortable or it's threatening or painful. I wonder, too, whether what happens is that someone then kind of sits in silence because they feel uncomfortable or they feel like the place is unsafe or they know they're going to get criticized or they will be canceled. Right. Well, this is where I think and and this is where my approach is sort of different. and, And you may have noticed that, you know, in the book is that, you know, I kind of try to approach these trainings with a certain measure of grace, Mm -hmm. that it's like a kid walking. As long as the kid's trying and you have a toddler who's one and who's walking, they're going to fall down. Again, that's part of the process of learning to walk is you must stumble and you must fall. Um, And so you don't castigate someone, you don't ridicule, you don't humiliate them for falling down. You acknowledge it and you encourage them to get back up and try it again. And they will get better with practice. Um, But again, it has to be a genuine effort and not some of that, you know, performative, um, strategic uh, behavior that I that I refer to later, as long as someone is genuinely trying, I I, I think, you know, it's it's helpful if we approach these situations with a certain measure of compassion and a certain measure of grace. And, And does that create a kind of safe environment so that people feel they can make a mistake or screw up and and not get in deep, deep trouble. Yes, and I think this is also where relationships come in, right? Because um, relationships, you, you know, and, and there's a book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott, and she talks about you know the value of being perfectly honest, right? This radical candor, but in order for radical candor to be effective, it has to occur in situations of high care and high trust, meaning. If you're just telling someone they're racist and they don't feel that you care about them as a person or maybe you hold them in contempt and they don't feel there's any trust, then it's going to be pure threat. But if you give someone negative feedback, but it's in an environment that's nurturing, like a child learning to walk, right, Um, then I think people are much more willing to rise to the challenge. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. Our guest today on The Connection is Robert Livingston. He's a Harvard uh, social psychologist. He wrote a book uh, recently called The Conversation, and it's about uh, racial equity and inclusion on the job in the workforce. Um, I I saw that people want to swap out, not everybody wants to swap out inclusion and replace it with belonging. And there was a study that I read that something like half of people who quit their jobs quit because they felt they did not belong in the workplace. And that can mean many, many different things. What do you think of the word belonging? I, I don't like to use it myself. And, and I'll, I'll give you two reasons. One is I think it's incredibly vague. Um, there was a recent New York Times article on this um, several weeks ago about uh, the substitution of the word belonging for the word inclusion. And within that article, there were at least four different definitions of the word belonging. Some is, you know, white men want to belong, so let's include them in the conversation. Some, you know, define belonging as bringing your full self to work. Some define belonging um, as not using any labels at all. So there was a Muslim woman who was interviewed who said, I don't like... Um, 
even identifying myself as a Muslim woman because then people have all sorts of stereotypes. So I'm just Fatima. I'm not a Muslim woman, right? And and it's all sort of contradictory because part of bringing your full self to work is being able to say, hey, I'm a black man or I'm a white woman uh, or I'm an Asian woman. Um, so the belonging thing I think is still in its infancy and people trying to work out what it is. But the second reason that I'm against belonging is that it's purely subjective. You can feel that you belong in an, in an environment where people secretly despise you. Mm-hmm. Or you can feel that you don't belong in an environment where people absolutely admire and respect you. This is the essence of the imposter syndrome. That's exactly what it is, is that you don't feel that others see your value or that you belong in a space, but others absolutely welcome you there, but you don't feel that. So I'm much more concerned in uh, in sort of building policies that objectively increase inclusion rather than trying to monitor or regulate people's internal perceptions of whether they belong or don't belong. I don't think I have a lot of control over whether someone believes they belong but I think companies do have a lot of control over whether their policies are inclusive or not inclusive and whether their culture is inclusive or not inclusive. And you can feel culture. So this gets back to the feelings. Um, but belonging is is kind of tricky for me. Mm, and I kinda, think it's missing. Yeah, so, and, and I understand what you're saying about that. Let me pick up on, on you mentioned a, a Muslim woman. You called her Fatima. Um, how do we, in, in terms of understanding bias and discrimination, um, how do we deal with people that are part of groups and them as individuals? You know what mm-hmm. I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. I do. And, you know, this is one of the hallmarks of white privilege, right? So that's a, a term I haven't used until now. No. But one <laughs> of the hallmarks of white privilege is that white people, particularly white men, have the luxury of being individuals, so if a white man commits, you know, a mass murder, which happened in Las Vegas against, you know, dozens of people, no one says we need to ban white males from the country. In fact, no one says anything about white males at all. It was all about John Smith. You know, he needs help and counseling and, and what was his mental health situation, you know. But if we replace John Smith with a Muslim man, then all of a sudden the event is seen through the lens of social identity that, oh, it's a Muslim who did that. And we need to ban Muslims from the country or we need to ban uh, Latinos or or African-Americans. And so I I think the line between individual and social group um, is much more defined for dominant group members than it is members of um, underrepresented minority groups. I was thinking of- It could never be an individual, yeah. No, I I, I hear exactly what you're saying. I was also thinking of of George Floyd, the, the murder of George Floyd by the police officer. Do you think that changed people's perceptions about race and police and violence? Well, you know, in many ways, um, uh, Marty, it, it goes back to that example of the um, availability heuristic that I told you about and the one child with a tear rolling down its cheek, right? Mm-hmm. Because I would be hard-pressed to believe that people didn't know that 
police brutality existed before George Floyd, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we go all the way back to Rodney King, the age of video. We first see this uh, on video and that was in 1992. So that was, you know, um, over 30 years ago. But I think the power of that was seeing this man suffering and calling out for his mother and the callousness of, of, of Derek Chauvin uh, all recorded on video. Again, it's 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 that one picture is worth a thousand words, or one you know eight minute video is worth millions of data points. Because we had had Trayvon Martin, we, we we had so many things that had happened. Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, uh, so many things had happened prior to this. But I think it was the vividness of the video and the brazenness with which this lynching occurred that I think really set people off. You write in your book, uh, it's nearly impossible for a black person to exist in the United States without having any contact with white people, especially blacks who work in professional settings. However, it is very possible to be a successful white person in the United States and have no interaction with black people. Why is that significant? Why, why does that, I guess, in a sense, sort of exacerbate our problems of, of figuring out how to get along with each other? Yeah, I, I think it exacerbates it for, for a number of reasons. One is, you know, there are so many white people who want to believe that this whole topic of race relations is six of one, half dozen of the other. Oh, there are white people who are racist. There are black people who are racist, right? They don't realize that it's based on power, that, you know, black people, um, if you define race as prejudice plus power, don't have the, the structural power to be racist. Um, and what it shows is that there is an asymmetry in society in terms of the necessity of people of color to be able to know how to navigate white spaces if they want to survive and if they want to uh, prosper, whereas you can be a white person and know absolutely nothing about the history, the culture, even individuals uh, who are who are people of color and and do just fine in the world and 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 I think that's yet another form of white privilege and and I think we need to stop treating race relations as if it's a two-way street that what's good for the goose is good for the gander or you know black people do this white people do this right it's it's not two sides of the same coin there are some real power asymmetries that we need to understand um you know, in order to have meaningful conversations ab ab about these issues. And that's just one example. I wonder, though, whether when we talk about our diverse country, and, and we've been framing it as kind of black and white, is mm -hmm. that it is so much more diverse than that in terms yes. of Latinos and, and Asians and, and uh, LGBTQ. I mean, it's just a much more diverse country than just the, the black and white binary. It is. It is. Um, you know, and and... It's even more complicated and diverse because, you know, Hispanic or Latino is is an ethnicity and not a race, which means that within Hispanic, there are people of every race. There are Afro-Latinos and there are people from Argentina with blonde hair and blue eyes and there are indigenous Latinos and there are people who are a mixture of all of the above. Um, and, you know, there are Latino groups that are U.S. citizens and like Puerto Ricans and, and they don't encounter the same immigration issues uh, that we see in in El Salvador and Guatemala. So I think there's an incredible amount of diversity, um, not just between different groups, but within groups. And, you know, of course, we have 
of our own indigenous population, Native Americans, who were the targets of genocide, right? And they've been ultra marginalized. Um, again, I think there's a difference between being stigmatized and being marginalized. Being marginalized means you're invisible. Being stigmatized means you are enemy of the state. You stand out, but in a negative way. So I think there's all kinds of complexities that characterize um, the challenges that different groups face at different moments in time. But I think there are many more commonalities that link all of these, um, what we might call uh, underrepresented groups in terms of, of, of the share of power that they hold, um, whether it's Latinx, whether it's um, you know LGBTQ, whether it's women, whether it's African-Americans. And I don't think it's uh, a coincidence that all of these social movements of the 60s occurred within five years of each other. So hmm. we had Stonewall for gay people, we had the civil rights movement, and we had Women's Lib all occurring, you know, uh, within a few years of one another. Well, I think yeah, and hold on to that thought only because they're playing my song. We have to take a very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Marty Moscoane, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Many workplaces have instituted diversity, equity, and inclusion training for their employees to help create a welcoming environment for everyone. We're talking about the best way to build cohesion with a diverse workforce. And again, Robert Livingston is our guest. He's a Harvard social psychologist, and he wrote a book called The Conversation. I'm wondering, though, just I, I mentioned this before, but I feel like we haven't really addressed it head on. How is someone who has had advantages in life, and I would frankly include myself as a white woman, I've had advantages in life. How do you, is is guilt <laughs> a healthy way to to, um, to understand that and deal with that? How do, how do someone, how does someone deal with the, the kinds of advantages that have been given to them? Yeah, and and I I have had certain advantages as well. And in the book, you know, I talk about the difference between individual privilege and institutional privilege. Uh, it's sort of like the movie Green Book, hmm. if you've seen that. I have. Um, yeah, you know, you've got a rich black man who employs a working class poor white man, and so you know, in many ways, the black man has more privilege than the white man. Um, on an individual level, but society conveys a lot more privilege to the white man on the institutional level, the caste system. And so the movie, you know, if you if you watch the movie, you see that even though the white man has no money, he has a lot more privilege, quote unquote, than the black man who is rich. And and so, you know, I think it's important to sort of understand the complexity of privilege and that individuals from any group can have a certain amount of privilege, but that's different than the privilege that that group has on a systemic level. And it's important to, 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 to sort of make a distinction between those two things. But I think absolutely, you know, anyone can sort of have privilege and I don't think it's necessarily a cause for guilt. I think it's, uh, you know, can be a source of both gratitude and responsibility. You know, with power or privilege comes responsibility. And the question is, what do you do with that privilege? Because privilege means that, you know, people listen to you when you speak about certain things. And so what is your platform? What are your values? What are you using that privilege to do? For me, that's the million dollar question rather than whether you have privilege or you don't. It's, you know, 
What are you using that privilege for? You write about the importance of empathy, which I think is also what, what you're talking about here. Mm-hmm. The, the ability to, to see beyond yourself, to imagine yourself in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and not everyone can do that. You know, in the book, I talk about the difference between dolphins, ostriches, and sharks. <laughs> and, and, you know, dolphins have empathy. They care about the community or the pod. Sometimes they bump beaks, but they're basically friendly, compassionate, pro-social. Ostriches don't care one way or the other. They bury their heads in the sand. Wake me when it's done. Sharks actually want there to be a social hierarchy. They want there to be inequality. They want there to be a food chain because if everyone were equal, they wouldn't have anything to eat. So they need mackerel. They need tuna. They need things that they see as weaker that they can consume, exploit, and dominate. And there are people in the world who actually prefer for inequality to exist. So, you know, I don't assume that everyone is a dolphin. Um, and there are many people who are just indifferent. They can take social justice. They can take injustice. Their question is, what's, what's, what's in it for me? Hmm. So not everyone has values that are conducive to empathy and to social justice. Um, and just so people know, you know, research suggests that about 48% of the population uh, are dolphins, about 40% are ostriches, and about 12% are sharks. And that's actually overrepresented when you get into top leadership positions because sharks tend to be attracted to power. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you, though, I, I probably should have asked you this a half an hour ago, but since we've been talking about bias and, and frankly, about racism, how do you see the psychology of, of racism? What is at its root? Fear. Fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think fear on many levels. I don't mean uh, realistic fear, like the fear that you get when you're walking in the savannah and you think a lion might jump out of the bush and eat you. That That's kind of, that's good fear. I'm talking about fear of inadequacy. Um, when, you, when you really get down to it, a lot of the reason that people, uh, and I talk about this in the book, um, are so desirous of power and status and prestige is that deep down they feel that they're worthless and mm -hmm. these things give them a sense of importance. And the people who are most secure are the people who need those things the least. They don't need the flashy car, the flashy clothes or the flashy jewelry or the you know fancy title at work. They feel that they have value in their own existence. Um, and there's all kinds of studies that show that, you know, if you tell someone they failed a test, they become more racist you know, um, wow. if you give someone negative feedback, right, anything that you can do to threaten someone's ego that has nothing to do with race uh, or gender can make people more racist or more sexist um, because they need to sort of feel better than someone else. So I think it's that need to feel better uh, because you yourself don't feel well. And, and look, I don't want to get into politics too much, but there are certain politicians that we can look at. And, and, and I actually pity because I think, wow, that person doesn't really feel good about themselves. Uh, <laughs> and you can see that. And you can see that this is not a person who has high quality relationships. And this is not a person who, you know, according to some accounts, had a loving home growing up and just really, really needs to feel like somebody. I'm, I think we know who you're talking about. <laughs> I'll just say that. Yes. Um, but there is something very tribal about uh, us, us human beings, wouldn't you say? That that we we sort of create our own our sort of own in crowd, and then we see the out crowd as some kind of a threat. 
Yes and no. So it's a really fascinating question. And there's a lot of sociobiological research around this because wolves do the same thing. And, you know, wild dogs do the same thing. And the idea is that you have to have what's called an optimally distinct group, a group that's like the three bears, not too big, not too small, just right. Because if the group's too small, you don't really have as much strength and power as you could. But if the group is too big, it becomes unwieldy. So animals like wolf packs, you know, they prefer medium sized, quote unquote, packs. And humans kind of prefer medium-sized groups so that some people are out and some people are in. But, you know, what's interesting about that is it doesn't matter what the groups are. So they don't have to be racial groups. And there's a lot of research that shows that you can erase race in two minutes in the laboratory. So, and we've seen this in the real world. You know, if you have black students at Ohio State and white students at Ohio State, when they attend an Ohio State-Michigan game, they become Buckeyes. At that moment, during the football game, the race doesn't matter. It's the color of your jersey that matters, whether it's scarlet and gray or whether it's Michigan blue. And what we find is that it's very easy to substitute what those categories are. Um, And that, you know, the ones that we tend to focus on in our society are socially constructed. So yes, it's natural for people to form groups, but no, there's nothing natural about racial segregation. That's fascinating. But but using that, I guess, that team metaphor and even going back to the workplace and workplaces are inequitable. I mean, you've got people that have more power than others, the power to hire and fire, for instance. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with the kind of hierarchical nature of the workforce, uh, but also to bring in more inclusion and equity? Yeah, you know, so, you you know, I tell people all the time, I'm I'm not a communist. And I think, (laughs) you know, a certain amount of hierarchy is not only inevitable, but probably beneficial. You know, if you're fighting a war, you need generals. You don't tell people, well, you go out to the battlefield and just do whatever the spirit moves you to do, right? I I can't tell you what to do because I'm not your boss. It would be a slaughter. Like, one effect of hierarchy is that it enables people to coordinate and it enables, um, you know, a lot of organization to happen that, that can be beneficial. My problem is with illegitimate hierarchy. Hmm. So if, you know, you're my doctor and, you know, I'm someone who, you know, is making the bed in the operating room and you went to medical school and I didn't right? And let's say we both had the same opportunities, then that's a hierarchy that makes sense, right? It's not that everyone should be a doctor regardless of whether you went to medical school or not. And it's not that, you know, everyone has the same talents. Like I will never be as good as LeBron James or Michael Jordan on the basketball court, no matter what. Me neither. They they are better than I am with respect to that. There are things that I do better than they do. So I think all humans have you know, our own special and unique talents. And we it would be foolish and naive to pretend that we're all exactly the same. Uh, we're not. But the problem here in our world is that we pretend to have a meritocracy when we actually don't. That what determines whether you get a job or not is not really what you know, it's what you look like. And that's different than the animal kingdom because, you know, out in the big bad bush, you know, your merit is tested. You can only be alpha until someone bigger and badder than you overthrows you. And then you're out and they're in. It's a pure meritocracy. In our human world, we don't have a pure meritocracy. We just have a hierarchy that's based on caste. 
that's based on group memberships, that's based on traditions, that's not truly based on your merit or your potential. Can we fix that? I think we can, but we have to want to. And as I said before, there are dolphins, there are ostriches and sharks. There are people who want to, there are people who don't care, and there are people who absolutely want to keep it the way it is. So it's going to be a pendulum, depending on you know who's got the power at any given point in time. Let me ask you about, this may seem like a sort of weird tangent, but I was thinking as you were talking about all the various book bans that have been instituted where number of parents don't want children to read books about um, Martin Luther King or about um, slavery or about uh, gay relationships. Looking at it from a psychological perspective, how do you see that? To me, I see it a lot like Santa Claus. And here's what I mean by this. When I was a kid, I was told, you know, there was a, a fat person who lived in the North Pole who would give me these presents on Christmas Day if I was good. <laughs> and, you know, I had all these questions. Well, how on earth does he make it around the world? <laughs> of course, uh, you right. know, in one night. But, but the idea there is that parents are not trying to tell kids the truth. They're telling them a story that's meant to create a sense of wonder and enchantment and excitement. It's, it's not about telling it the way it is. I think a lot of people are treating history like Santa Claus. It's not about telling the truth. It's about telling a story that they think is going to create a greater sense of patriotism or a greater sense of pride, right? And that's fine, right? I'm very non-judgmental in these kinds of things, but then you can't call it education, just like you can't really call Santa Claus education. That's not what it is. It's 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 fantasy. It's it's still, and so I think when people are trying to restrict others from access to the truth, the same way that you know they tried to keep me for many years from finding out the truth about Santa Claus because they wanted to maintain a certain emotional state in a child, I think as a nation they're trying to create a certain emotional state. Right? We talked about discomfort. We talked about. Um, guilt, all of these other things before. Um, and I think, you know, it's at the expense of truth that that people, whole school systems are making the decision to um, ban information that they know to be true, which is why I also linked it to the Santa Claus situation, because my parents know there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> Like, like it, it, it's not like no one told them either. And they're telling me something that they think is the truth, but it's really not. You know, the people banning the books, they know that slavery existed. Like, it's not even a controversial question. Like, well, you know, did it, did it not? They know that it did. Um, they just don't want to tell the truth about it because of the feelings that they feel that truth will bring. The um, and the I think it's very short-sighted. Sure, I, I agree with that, but but that gets back to the fear, right? People are afraid. Mm, exactly, exactly. That's why I think it's the root. How did you get into this line of work? <laughs> Your yeah, origin a, story, right? Yeah, well, and again, it always <laughs> comes back to the personal story. Exactly. But, um, you, you know, the quick version is um, I happen to be born at a very opportune point in time. I was born in 1971 in the wake of the civil rights movement. And there were all these sort of movements you know, to get more Black people in jobs. I lived in a city where there was an IBM plant. I also lived in a city, and I found this out just a couple of years ago when my father sent me the newspaper article from 1968, that my neighborhood that I grew up in um, uh, was actually 
a bunch of farmland donated by a wealthy and benevolent white man, a dolphin, who thought, you know, I want to build a nice neighborhood, a Brady Bunch style middle class neighborhood for black people. And there were tennis courts. There were, it was just a beautiful neighborhood, lots of trees. And I grew up in this sort of Wakanda, this all black <laughs> neighborhood right. where my dentist was black, Dr. Brown, you know, my, my elementary school principal was black, our attorney was black. You know, I just was surrounded by all of these role models. And in many ways, it was a bubble. And I didn't know, I, you know, I kind of knew, but it was funny what white people thought of black people, but I didn't know up close and personal. And I didn't have a lot of trauma because I was surrounded by black people, um, Cosby show kind of way. So long story short, when I went to college and I went to school in New Orleans because I was, a, uh, I played woodwinds, uh, saxophone and clarinet, and I wanted to be in a jazz city and it's a long story, but I ended up in, in New Orleans and it was the deep South. And I heard some of the ideas that white people had about black people. And it fascinated me. Here's the thing. It didn't threaten me. It didn't upset me. I was intrigued. It's almost like a three-year-old who thinks that there's a monster under the bed. You're not going to get angry. You're not going to get scared because you know there's not a monster. You'll ask questions. Well, you know, what does this monster look like? And does it have big teeth? And does it breathe fire? Because you're concerned about this delusion or, or the fear that this three-year-old has, and you're 100% sure there's no monster under the bed. That was the way that I felt about white people who were telling me these things that they thought to be true about Black people that I saw as complete fiction that they think that there's a dragon under the bed and there's nothing there. So that increased my curiosity to want to understand how people could be so off in their perceptions and, and how I could help them and help the world. Well, you know what, Robert Livingston, we, we could go on. We've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Thank you for having me, Marty. You're welcome. He's a Harvard-based social psychologist. And again, his book is called The Conversation. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>